0: Welcome to the International Schools Podcast, my name is John McDon, I'm your co-host. Dan will very likely drop in, uh, or if he's not here, he will catch up next week. All of us, of course, are different types of learners, we approach learning with different dispositions, different behaviors, different cognitive capacities, and what's really rich about that, there's so much diversity in the way we learn. But one area that I think is really interesting is supporting neurodiverse uh, students and adults, because everybody can be neurodiverse. And I think navigating that landscape can sometimes be complex and it's very nuanced and requires a lot of thought, empathy, and really understanding. And I think, you know, we've had different guests that have talked about this, but today I just feel very honored and privileged. We have, uh, Kirsten, who is with Gaia Learning, and Kirsten, uh, is the founder of this fantastic website and service, and we'll dig into this. Kirsten is a qualified teacher, a DHD coach, mom of 3 neurospicy tweens. I love that. An ambassador for teaching the SDGs. And, uh, Kirsten has done a lot of work in this area and has a a big reputation, especially in the United Kingdom and with some schools abroad, and we have the pleasure to kind of talk about this topic and hear more about uh, some of the things that maybe parents can think about or educators as they reflect on supporting neurodiverse students or even neurodiverse learners in the context of an international school. So, Kirsten, a warm welcome to the International Schools Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want you to tell us about the spicy teens because that just jumped (laughs) out. And I love the label and I just think it's a great way. I don't have teenagers anymore, but I did and they were spicy. So maybe just kind of on a side note and then we'll dig into more serious things.
1: Um, Yeah, it's a it's a. A kind and creative label, I think that mums and dads of neurodivergent children will identify with. Um, they can certainly um, bring the creativity, but the challenges um, and eccentricities that uh, go with neurodivergence. Um, so my eldest son who is uh, now 14 was the reason behind me setting up Gaia in the first place um, it was actually my my avoidance of wanting to um, have the ADHD label um, applied to him in schools uh, it was very evident <laughs> as early as in the womb <laughs> that he had more energy than, um, than other children and I think very typically that idea that we have of boys who can't sit still, um, he didn't get on in school at all, he would literally physically escape the school buildings, Um, he would make himself violently ill uh, in school, Um, but I found that when he was in the right environment, when he could um, have all of the learning tailored to his interests, when there was plenty of breaks, um, when the class sizes were small, actually that um, those characteristics were, uh, all the negative ones were less obvious. So nice. I, I was very passionate about understanding more about education and how it could be personalized and in fact changed careers and went into teaching myself. Um, but when it was a psychologist that said to me, actually, the only way that your son is going to be able to thrive in school is going to be with medication. I just it just didn't sit well with me at all. Um, so I, I just hold on one second. Oh, Sorry, my <laughs> printer just decided to have a little go. No worries. Um, so I. It, yeah learned a lot about about teaching uh, and it was only in the private sector that I could get that kind of bespoke care for him which as a single parent to three children was not um possible for yeah. uh, for me to do alone so it was kind of during COVID that I started experimenting um out of need with blended learning I was having to teach um kids in an international private school both online and in a classroom and with my kids in the background and everybody knew you know how difficult that was for parents not in the teaching profession to facilitate so it became very obvious to me that there was when tech was being used badly or when there was just too much overstimulation it was it was not good but I could see the power and potential of it to actually give my son exactly what he needed in small focus class sizes, personalised learning, um, and plenty of time and breaks and opportunities to get outside, to climb trees, to um, to play sport. Um, I'm a geography teacher and very passionate about outdoor learning and learning in the real world. And I really think that there is a Uh, a place for technology to facilitate that well-being and that more holistic approach to education so we take um, and have developed over the last few years uh, what I realize now is a very unique approach to um, oh hi Dan (laughs) Uh, to learning online so it's not replicating school online Um, we're very different to other online schools who uh, seem to just Yet, literally replicate a classroom environment in an online space, Uh, whereas there is so much opportunity and creative potential to make it a really bespoke, uh, rich, um, differentiated experience.
0: Fantastic. And what a wonderful story. And I think sometimes, you know, when you're surrounded by adversity and you want to support somebody and you don't have the resources and you say, OK, guess what? I'm going to do it myself. And that's just such a wonderful, rich story you shared. Tell us a bit, Kirsten, you know, we have this label of neurodiversity, which is kind of the new Term, and when I grew up, it was rowdy kids or misbehaved kids there's been permutations of different labels i don 't know what label you had then, but i didn't have a good one and all of them, uh, no. all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. tell us a bit about how those labels have changed and and you know today neurodiversity is a very it feels like it's really inclusive and it really gives quite broad in scope
1: yeah and I think it's so important that you pick up there on those labels and the negative connotations that can come with that um especially where my son can be viewed very negatively and and if the on the wrong day in the wrong situation it is that that naughtiness or the that that feeling of not fitting in or or doing the wrong thing or being sent out of the class or you know getting detentions that kind of thing which when those labels and that sort of habitual kind of labeling of kids gets ingrained so early on in childhood it starts to really stick quite deeply with you as somebody that doesn't fit in isn't right is is wrong in in some kind of um in some kind of way so that was the label that I feared for my son and why I didn't want to I didn't want him to have that I wanted to try to change the environment um that said, I think for girls who have ADHD, it was only in this journey that I had my own adult <laughs> diagnosis of this, because what we know about um, neurodivergent traits is that they are hereditary. So a lot of the families that we work with, the parents have ADHD or autism or both, um, and it's only when they are in this desperate situation trying to find a, situ- you know, a an educational environment to fit their children, that they go on that inner journey themselves and go. Wait, hang on. I filled out that same form, and a lot of these things apply to me. So um, my daughter in the middle uh, has um, ADHD traits as well, but because she's a girl, like I did at school as well, it because I wasn't climbing the walls, because I, I wasn't rocking on my chair. The busyness is more internalized. And so it's those, you know, look back on school reports of she was away with the fairies or, you know, could do better in class or if only she applied herself, that kind of thing. And for me, it was a case of getting to GCSEs and failing all my mock exams and then realizing that, wait, hang on. If I teach myself this stuff, I can, you know, kind of see how i can do it so i think in the last sort of three months i hyper focused and taught myself um, and ended up with 10 a's and a stars and then almost like had this huge imposter syndrome thinking like how did i do that did i cheat did i did i do it kind of wrong but realizing that the way i learned was just different and that when you know it's the same principles applied to girls as to boys, if you change the environment, you understand what the learner's strengths are, how they learn, when they need to learn, the pace at which they learn and you change that, actually the outcomes are are wonderful. And and so just, you know, I, it was quite, quite a um, sobering experience when I had my diagnosis because mm-hmm. you feel quite sad. Like I felt quite sad about how, deeply I'd struggled with my mental well-being during that time um, because it, the masking is exhausting and that misunderstanding of, of who you are and thinking that you're wrong or different um, has, it has a really, really lasting effect. So. I'm I'm well, curious we...
2: though, Kirsten, cuz like just I'm uh, sorry for being late guys I, I was on the original time I don't know if it changed I was on the 5.40 time but but pleasure to to, to be here I'm I'm curious like just cuz uh, this topic fascinates me and I'm wondering everything you said is really interesting but I'm wondering is there a case obviously in some cases for just ignoring it and because I'll give you an example of, of my sister her son I I would say I'm not a doctor I'm not a psychologist but you know um is or was you know some definitely ADHD definitely somewhere on the autism spectrum she had teachers at school saying you have to be tested you have to do this she constantly fought with the school said nothing she didn't want anything to do he's now 18 he's doing amazing I have to say like out of every 18 year old he's just got a record deal with his band like it's just it's phenomenal you know and um like I'm I'm sure that approach can have bad consequences as well but is is there something to be said because her idea was you know because I think you know I like John mentioned when I arrived like in our age, I think it was just much less diagnosed. I'm actually curious if you think it's, it's increasing and if there's, if there's any reasons for that, but, but I'm sure it was less diagnosed. You can tell me, but, but is there an argument for just in some cases, just I'm ignoring this? You, you know, you know you're different, but you figure out, you figure out a way around it.
1: Yeah, it, very interesting questions. I think, you know, in, in the UK, adult diagnoses of ADHD only really happened after 2008. So yeah. it's not a surprise that... Yeah. There are more diagnoses because I mean, there weren't nobody knew about it. It wasn't a thing. Um, And yes, I mean, I'm a case in point of I didn't have that diagnosis at school. So yes, I've got on with it. And yeah, now I've got, you know, a successful business and I'm an entrepreneur. And you look at how many people entrepreneurs who do have ADHD and it sort of is created out of, I think just before you came on, John was saying that, the out of adversity you can create new things and new ways of of thinking Um, i i think yes there is a there is a resilience um that comes from it like no other when when you get through it but now that i have a greater understanding of it and work with a lot of um parents and coach kids and teens and parents there's a lot of unnecessary suffering that goes with it Um, People with ADHD are far more likely to um, suffer mental health problems, um, to commit suicide more um, likely than their peers, up to, you know, the statistics like five times more likely than others. Um, in my personal journey, um, that was something that I've come close to on a couple of occasions. And the understand, you know, so for me, yes, you can be resilient, but
2: yeah you, parents, might get, you might get lucky but you might it's, it's, it's yeah, just, yeah, it's but you a might and, yeah yeah but you might not and
1: and the the tears that i share with the parents who kids come with us where they are watching their children self-harming and and literally suicidal over that and then the reports that we get once they've had a break from school that they've been with us for a few months and sure. i read an email just this afternoon from a parent and she was saying I had no idea my child could love learning again like this I never thought I'd you know since this kid was in year two she hasn't seen her come alive about English literature she was reporting on and this girl's 15 years old and she's been kicked out of every school and it's um, that that's not the chance that I want to take on on sure. my kids um, and I think it It doesn't have to be as drastic as pulling your kids out of school or um, I reluctantly home educated my son for two years because school was not a place that was good for him. He is now back in school, but of his own choice and armed with more of an understanding about how his brain works and what he needs. Um, And yeah, he doesn't he doesn't um, show the label out or talk about it. To his peers because he doesn't want to be different or other but he also knows what he needs to do to balance um his well-being and
2: and, and do you think Like, i'm curious just on, on the taking you know, right in the beginning topic of adhd is it is it something that's um more common now and if so are, are there reasons i mean i heard i don't know if this is true but i heard some cystic but it was much more diagnosed in the us than the uk is that is there, is there reasons why there is more or is it just more diagnosed or, cause obviously it's, you're making kind of a, a judgment, aren't you? It's not, it's not an exact science to, to evaluate someone on the kind of a, a scale, I guess.
1: Yeah, but it can still only be diagnosed by a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, I think here in the UK, the waiting lists for diagnoses are still up to seven years. Right. Um, wow. I was lucky enough that um, my brother actually paid for me to go privately Um to do that and it was after a period of severe burnout where i literally
0: yeah.
1: um was in hospital um and understanding or having that that validation um which involved i'm uh, going on to adhd medication um and then learning a lot about it and you know having coaching and all, all sorts of other things literally my my family my my colleagues don't recognize me in that. So once, once you are diagnosed, once you have that understanding, it is nothing short of life transforming. Um, and to anybody who, who has gone through that process, I think it's, uh, yeah. (laughs) Is
2: it, is it, is it more common or, or is it just more diagnosed or is it a combination?
1: Um, I think our awareness is increasing hugely in it. So there's, um, there is more of an understanding, I think, COVID and having uh, opportunities to be outside a school system for a period of time, allowed a lot of people to and kids and families to take stock and really look at what what the school system was offering what their children were learning. um, And, and also, it made it so stark to go back into that system, when you know, that has fundamentally changed businesses, industry, how we work in hybrid blended ways. And yet we've just put kids right back, you know, to almost pre-2019 um, system of education where that doesn't make sense for them anymore either. And I think we're looking forward to the jobs of the future, the acceleration of AI and and the Kids are clever and they understand like why it makes even less sense to them, why they are sitting still in rows, learning things that are not preparing them for their futures. And I think it's it's making it more obvious that I think kids with ADHD are the canaries in the mine of the education system that are crying loudest for the need for change um, in the systems we have.
0: And I think you bring up a good point is, you know, we uh, during COVID, many schools were able to do hybrid, more personalized learning, less, you know, kind of testing and assessment and and more uh, almost diversify the entry points to the learning. And I just think your point is so important. Suddenly COVID's over and we're back in rows and it just doesn't make sense, you know, and I think it's it's about that balance. And, you, you know, Dan was saying, Uh, asking you those questions. And you were saying that, yes, it's okay to ignore it and just be resilient. But it sounds like it's a balance of actually maybe not jumping to medication and going into panic mode, but finding that balance, understanding the actual uh, neurodiversity. What are some strategies that work? What are some don't? And maybe medication is part of that package. And I think that's often takes time. And in schools, Often teachers don't have time. If you have 40 kids in a classroom and you have five, six kids that are neurodiverse, it's very hard. And especially if you're teaching content where you're getting kids to do exams, there's not hands on projects, you know, project based learning. So it just seems the mix of old exam centric education is mm-hmm. the worst enemy for these kids.
1: Oh, yeah, 100 percent. It it um, it definitely highlights highlights the absurdity of that. And I, I do think we've got more stimulus and things in schools with more ed tech products and pressure for teachers to try new things. And it, it is, it's it's too overwhelming. And, and I think that does kind of exacerbate some of that, uh, those traits or um, behaviors that we see where I think neurodivergent or not, our attention spans are decreasing and um, we are having to process a lot more information a lot more quickly. Um, but it's yeah, it, it's a challenge for teachers in a classroom to, you know, to to cope with that as well in the structure of the school day. But I think we have been moving over time to question the way that schools that schools operate. But I think under you know, no version of the future is the school not important. I think it will always be a really vital, crucial place to bring kids together to to play and to be creative and to be in a library and to play sports. Um, but the opportunities that we've got to use technology, to differentiate, to connect classrooms across the world, to open the minds of of kids um, and prepare them for the future, is, it's here as well. So why, why wouldn't why, we need to evolve into that space? And if kids with ADHD are nudging us in that direction, then so be it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, I I work in a school and I have a couple kids that uh, have neurodiversity and socialization sometimes can be challenging. And also when they kind of focus on one thing, they go deep and really, so I have one of the students working with me with Lego robotics. And it's amazing how he's just taking it to a level that, you know, I, I had not imagined you could do that with a bricks and some coding. So there is something to be said about how do you So what would you say to parents? Because you work a lot with your parents. Again, Gaia Learning is the website. Do spend some time on there. What what would you say to parents that are kind of struggling with this? And Okay, they've got a diagnosis. Maybe the school or they got into that seven-year queue and they finally talked to somebody. What are some things you're doing with parents to kind of not appease them but to kind of make them feel like this is doable?
1: um so you mentioned something about medication there and about you know not leaping too quickly into it that was my main driver I did not want to put my child on medication in order to cope with school but one of the massively you know uh validating changing things um that we can do is to help parents to not feel alone so um since I had my um diagnosis it's validation of yes your brain does work differently and this is why um some of these things are harder for you and to understand the 30 percent delay in executive function that you have compared to other other people uh, so it's a combination of understanding that your brain is different um the sharing experiences with other parents um and educators that you know what this is actually really hard I called my kids neuro spicy, it can really sometimes sting these, these extra uh, more difficult, really challenging behaviours that come with it. So that first step, even just when they talk to us, and they realise, do you know what, there is, there is an organisation out there that can still deliver education to my kid in a different way. Sometimes it's, you know, a few months before they actually come to us. But they will access our support groups and and talk about it because being seen and being understood just is step one in feeling like you're not wrong you're not other you're not abnormal you're just different and then it's realizing that there are strategies that make a massive difference like right now i'm i'm standing here in my office because i'm really vocal about this and places like linkedin and somebody sent me a stand-up desk. So his company make um, raised desks specifically to support ADHD kids in schools. And he was like, hey, do you wanna try out one of, my, one of my desks? And so I'm standing here and I'm like, this makes a huge difference to me that I'm not like contorted in a little like, cause I get hyper-focused and I just sit for like seven hours and I don't move and I forget to go to the toilet and you know, like basic things like that. So little accommodations like, hey, what if we just let the kids stand and work can make a huge difference. I'm not medicating them. I'm not putting them online or in front of a computer. I'm just letting them stand. And then things like understanding that, um, you know, there's a lot of research around like the Pomodoro technique of doing um, short bursts with regular breaks of activity. So don't lecture a kid for an hour, but let's do purposeful like experiential learning for 25 minutes and then have a break. or allow kids that are overstimulated by busy corridors to come into a class five minutes after everybody else or to be seated before having to deal with that commotion of (coughs) excuse me um so strategies like that empower parents and they also empower kids to go do you know what i i can deal with this myself and i don't have to show my adhd card or anything i can I can mitigate these tricky situations for me on my own. Um, Currently in America, Australia, the UK, there is an outright shortage of ADHD medication. So I became quite, um, Mm. well. medication makes a huge difference for me, um, but now I can't access it. So there's always going to be those, you know you can't just it, this isn't fixed with a magic pill it's It is strategies, it's understanding, it's self-compassion, it's educating educators how to deal with those kids and understanding why their behaviors are like they are, and recognizing that you can't approach them in the same way that you would other kids. That would have the same beneficial effect it doesn't work on those kids so rather than just hitting your head against literally a brick wall or demonizing those kids if you just took a different approach you'd have a positive outcome
2: yeah it's interesting i have both those things i i personally do standing desk i like it's a game changer like I, I've, I've been on it for like two years and everything like my, i have less back pain i sleep better because i'm just more tired from standing up the whole day yeah. i only sit down to eat pretty much if i'm meeting someone and and pomodoro technique is i've I, um I, I go sometimes i forget i go backwards and forwards on it but you know just doing that 20 minute sprint and then five minutes sometimes i'll do longer i'll do 50 minutes and then five, 50 minutes 10 minutes but um i think everyone if, if, if people listening to this have not heard of a pomodoro technique then def, definitely try I, i've got a quick question if you don't mind about medication i know we're getting into the detail but like i was watching this at pbs you know frontline thing and it was talking about you know there are people who say that Ritalin in particular, which I I, I don't understand, but I, I believe it's like amphet- effectively amphetamines, amphetamine based, is is oversubscribed, and the doctor on this PBS documentary was making the case not that it's oversubscribed, oh, prescribed, not overprescribed, but it was like there was a lot of misdiagnoses. The, the problem was there was a lot of people who prescribed it who should have been diagnosed as, as something else. This is just talking about America. Is that is that something you think is happens in the UK, or do you think, or, or do you agree with that?
1: Um, I think that that's a distraction from um, recognising that for a lot of people, that is a very real solution. And is yeah. um, I think the percentage of, of people who are misdiagnosed is very small. And I think it is a massive shame to kind of highlight something like that, that diminishes the experience that people who really do have it are having and the positive impact that a positive diagnosis and medication for treatment alongside a holistic approach um, is having so i i don't think that's helpful in discussions to to focus on that there was um recently a um, documentary thing here in the uk that supposedly you know highlighted things like that and there were a few dodgy clinicians involved in a thing like that i think you're going to get that in any kind of um you know diagnoses of things but
2: i think you you think it's not you think it is it's not misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed it's it's like at the the right level at least in the i guess the uk is what you know about the most i imagine
1: um yeah hugely but i mean we we do know that um you know that this is like statistically um there are a lot of people who have not yet been diagnosed it's still very much not i don't think we've reached the the actual right right um, tip of it And I think it also just detracts from some very real, very tangible accommodations that we can make and tweaks to the education system that are just gonna be good for everyone. So rather than singling out and demonizing um, neurodivergent kids and uh, medication and stuff like that, rather look at if this is symptomatic of something that kids don't fit into anymore anyway, what can we do that there's a lot of those techniques that help everyone whether they are neurodivergent or not yeah. and I think that's a far more fruitful um, focus area for for us and for funding and for research by governments into the effects of some of these these accommodations within schools.
0: I, I think that's a really interesting point you bring up is the idea that A lot of the strategies in this holistic approach to neurodiverse children is actually good learning and good teaching. I'll yeah. just, by the way, I am also a standing desk person. I've been doing yeah. it for 10 <laughs> years. Absolutely love it. There I could is. not live without it. Yeah, I I, it's, yeah I, I I can't sit down at a desk. Yeah. But I'm just thinking, you know, I think there's something to be said because in this approach to new or diverse learning, and as Dan was saying, he does his 20-minute concentration and then a five-minute uh, break. All that we know that, you know, TED Talks are 20 minutes. They know after 20 minutes, nobody's going to listen. Right. They say, you know, you should speak for seven minutes and then do an activity and then speak for seven minutes. Those things, even I don't think you have to be neurodiverse to realize that's just really helpful because all of us find it hard sitting in a chair. I mean, I don't think we like sitting in a chair for four hours even if you're binge-watching Netflix. So <laughs> I think your point's an important one, Kirsten, is that we need to think of this more as, yes, we're supporting neurodiverse kids, but let's look at also our approaches to learning, how we can support everybody in this journey. Would you agree or do you see some... Yeah, absolutely,
1: 100%. And our, our platform, our learning ecosystem, is based around a lot of what is accepted um, by you know, neurodivergent or not. That a flipped classroom is really beneficial because it's great so, that you can look at the material beforehand that you can watch it again afterwards and um, that lecturers are forced to be really succinct with the points that they're going to make in that lecture and it doesn't it's not going to be great to have it for an, an hour because you know that they're just going to scroll through it or put it on hyper speed or, or whatever so i think it it's it is from an employment point of view the educators that we hire uh, we're looking for more, uh, more tech savvy, agile subject experts who are able to um, communicate their expertise in a way that is engaging. And yes, they probably are competing against YouTube um, actors and, you know, that kind of thing, because that's that's what kids want to consume. Um, yeah. There's no reason why we can't uh, teach The curriculum like that, Um, the the curriculum that that we offer, we. we, um, Offer the Cambridge International Curriculum, we're at Cambridge International School online. But we have. um, It's all accessible in bite size. Chunks that you can personalize with uh, language, with the way that it's presented in um, text to speech, or uh, how big you want to read the font, or um, we can personalize it and we adapt it slightly to different um, hemispheres, even because there's different <clears throat> things going on in science in the south to the north, and and uh, all of that. So,
0: yeah, and then actually-
1: again, being able to access learning wherever you are is Brilliant. I mean, I um, grew up and was educated in South Africa. I started my career in Australia. I've been, you know, did some of my schooling and university here in the UK. The whole idea of global, flexible, um, traveling families is is normal now. And being able to access different curriculums. I mean, I found it really hard um, starting my career in Australia when they didn't quite understand my GCSE grades that I was really proud of because I've done so well in them but they were like well we have a number out of 100 or whatever so what were you on the number and I was like I don't know but I have these A grades mm-hmm. so being able to mix and match curriculums and all of that that's that's not just for neurodivergence that's just for modern families
0: absolutely no no I think that's so true and it, it it's that variety and I think especially when we think of so many people being global and people moving and kids having to move different schools, you know, sometimes these very, uh, as you say, these exams that are unique to a, a region that aren't, uh, aren't transferable to another, that can just be a real nightmare uh, for parents. So one thing that, you know, is really interesting about your website is that you do one-on-one tutoring. You have small groups. So it's like a whole ecosystem of learning. It's almost like a learning management system, but that's tailored to a group of learners that have maybe different types of needs or need to have entry points that are very diverse. Can you maybe talk a bit about, you know, how the site works? So I'm a parent. I'm living in Hong Kong and I, I have a spicy tween and school's just not happening. They're in a traditional school and we're really struggling. And somebody says, oh, you should look at different approaches to learning. And then we Google search you and we find you. So what happens?
1: So, yes, we support um, kids one to one if that is In that instance, if you're coming from Hong Kong and had a a specific curriculum that you wanted to mirror and support or supplement in that area, then um, we do that. Um, If the time zone makes sense, we have um, a full timetable um, running Monday to Thursday. So we believe in the four day week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that Friday is always kept free for projects and things like that. Um, So kids can come into the timetabled sessions Um, We then work with specific schools, so where we partner with schools, um, we um, mirror their curriculum, so they might have English, Maths and Science going on on campus, but then they've got some learners that um, don't come into those, so they access the same curriculum effectively from home, and we build their confidence to get back into that setting. Um, But success for us is about facilitating that social interaction with kids. We do not want to see kids like sitting and watching um, passively online. It's very immersive. It's very much active learning. We do encourage them to stand up, to dance, to show show their learning um, actively. And, um, and then, and also teaching them the skills to understand their own brains. So we didn't start out focused just on um, neurodiversity. That just, that was my reason to come into it. and then we realized that the majority of our kids were autistic or had ADHD but we also have gifted talented normal you know just kids who for whatever reason whether it's traveling or or that they're overseas want that flexibility they want school on their own timetable we have some high net worth families who literally will access our lessons from their own islands sometimes, you know, it's like, where am I today? So I think there are just different, there's a different mindset of international families that see the value in personalized education. And so we just work with them to uh, create a bespoke timetable around their kids needs. And for some kids that can be very much like, they just literally won't wake up until ten o'clock in the morning, so we don't put on classes for them until ten thirty in the morning, and but after that, they love the learning, and so that's that it, It's literally tailored around when they are going to be learning best, yeah. and the outcome is, you know, the same. They still sit the same exams at the end of the day. They've just learned the material at a pace and in a place where they feel comfortable to meet their
2: potential yeah super interesting i've got i've got a question um slightly change of direction about entrepreneurship because obviously john and me both got entrepreneurial ventures past and present um and i think a lot of a lot of our listeners work for international schools uh, or other companies and they're looking at this is a kind of business like, like tutoring starting an online school connected but a lot of teachers think about it in, in, in all kinds of different areas you know so i'm curious like it's always good to get into the practicalities. Like, how did you start this? Was it just you? Did you start it while you had a job? Did you start tutoring yourself and then you made some money and hired people? I'd love just to hear a bit about your entrepreneurial story.
1: Um, yeah, sure. Uh, it did start while I was still in uh, still teaching. So I actually um, as I said, was teaching in an in an international private Apple school here in the UK. Um, it was really my it was, I thought at that time was the pinnacle of success for me. So, part of it in my personal story was um, becoming a teacher to support my son who didn't fit in, but it was also to leave a relationship that was not good. So, moving into a school with the facilities and a job was my like, that was it, it was gonna have made it. And yeah. mm. um, literally, a safe place. Where my kids' needs would be met, but when I was teaching there, it was so obvious to me that despite the access to technology and a lot of a lot of investment and all that, that the teaching hadn't evolved. So I initially um, Guy Learning was set up as a tuition business, and so I was working after hours just tutoring yep. um, and and building that up. But then my first clients were in Saudi, so I, which meant it wasn't after school, but it was um, before school. So I would wake up before my children and start teaching at 5 a.m. And very quickly realized that I was making more money while my children were still in bed before I'd <laughs> made them their porridge. Um, and then I was teaching in a school where actually I wasn't earning a lot at all. And yeah. so when that kind of contract was... Um, uh, secured for a year, I thought, no, do you know what? I'm going to chance it, and I I left teaching yeah. at that this point. This was just you at this point. Just uh, so it was me and a couple of other tutors.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. I'd also got a I got a scholarship through the Royal Geographical Society to train to teach, and through mm-hmm. that I'd met a group of other quite ambitious geographers and scholars who, um. Basically, anybody on that program had had life experience, other jobs and and things like that. And I think all of us were like, hang on, this teaching in schools is for the birds. Why would anyone do this? It's really, it's really hard work. It's really thankless. And you don't get paid a lot, even if you're working in a, like, a good school. So a few of those people were my initial tutors and team. And then during COVID, uh, I kind of just through their goodwill said, why don't we just try this and see if we can engage all these kids that are sitting at home and their parents are trying to work and everyone's a bit fraught. Let's see if we can engage them. So we started doing these classes based around the sustainable development goals, because we were all kind of like quite passionate about about that. And the parents were (laughs) just like bowled over because they said, well, we've been sent, you know, email attachments, hundreds of them for stuff to print out for us to do with our kids at home. And you're just online, and you're getting the kids to like do these experiments and, and whatever, and, and they've got friends, and they are le- they're solving real world problems, and like this is really exciting. So that was built a lot of encouragement to go. Do you know what? Maybe there's something in this if we
0: yeah.
1: we're personalizing it. And so, but the big key thing, um, I think, Joni asked, like, what does the ecosystem look like? We are capturing skills as like rather than knowledge acquisition, we do that, obviously, and it's like a byproduct that they can do the exams at the end of the day, but by tracking the skills across whatever project they're doing. Um, it's that that I think is the the future proofing thing and that's what's um, gathered a lot of. Uh, interest and excitement in what we're doing and um, because it's those digital credentials and the evidencing of the learning because in the situation in the personal situation that i was in uh, there was a lot of um there were a lot of questions over you know the homeschooling would this work and and so i needed to do it in a way that evidenced and proved the learning so the data gathering that we've got is incredibly rich and we can track and monitor the increase in kids verbal and written communication and the language that they're using and the skills that they're building in different areas and you know combining that with the their how they're feeling about themselves their holistic well-being how many steps they took (laughs) that day outside and giving parents this really really rounded picture of of the progress that their kids are making so they're they can be confident that to step outside the norm is something that's going to be really tangibly preparing their kids for the future. And can
0: parents uh, can parents jump in uh, during the week and see this data? Is it, I'm just thinking a bit like online banking, you know, I get my whatever investments or whatever I'm doing, I get a little snapshot and I can follow it. Is it the same idea that that flexibility?
1: Um, yes. So we um, started partnering with schools as well. And so we actually had this very forward thinking school that was like, do you know what? We're so desperate to get these kids engaged and nothing else has worked. We're going to have a like chance it with you guys initially. And so we were reporting weekly to the local, um, their local council and also to their SENCOs and the head teachers and the parents, or in fact, it was the grandparents or the carers that were involved in supporting these kids. And so we were very manually um, pulling out the data weekly and displaying it. And that like literally kind of blew their minds. So that has been how the business is now evolving in partnering with local authorities, multi-academy trusts here and really quite forward thinking schools who really get this because now the tech that we've put behind it, you can see minute by minute. Um, so we're reporting after every session, what what they're doing, how, how well they're doing. And then um, we are currently in um, an accelerator program called Baltic Ventures up in Liverpool here in the UK. So um, we uh got through a quite a competitive um process and so we've got some funding now that we have invested in to what we call gyalytics um and i'll add to the show notes as well where you can see what these dashboards look like um that'd be great yeah so yeah
0: so I would I'm wondering now with AI and Chat GPT and APIs. I assume you're very excited because now some of you were saying that you were doing some of this data extraction manually. I can only imagine what that was like. Uh and so now with this AI, do you see greater potential? And is that where you're heading? So it's automated and Parents can jump in and there's this this kind of narrative that occurs and you're really focusing on the teaching and different approaches instead of that back end.
1: Yes. Yeah, 100%. It's already um, embedded in our virtual classroom. So we can see transcript um, data that we can uh, interrogate with AI to personalize and give reports in formats that are appropriate to the different stakeholders. Um, But we mainly use AI to personalize lesson planning um, and adapt resources uh, for the, to save educator time. Um, but the, yeah, the, the AI is ingrained in Gyalytics as well and we see the potential of that just, yeah, it is, it's hugely exciting. Um, the, the challenges around that though are working in international markets and GDPR and student data and privacy and all of that. So while it is all there and it's ready to um, be turned on, there are, we're we're working very carefully and sustainably with a lot of um, advice and uh, sensitivity around that because yeah, you can't, you can't mess with this stuff, but the, the power of it is, massively transformative and it's really attracting for us a very high caliber of teacher because I think that's the other thing that we want as much to change the way education is consumed by neurodivergent thinkers and kids but it's also to show that education and being an educator and being a subject expert can be incredibly rewarding exciting and well remunerated um in this this space as well so it's an exciting time to be a teacher i think well
0: i think if you if we you know kind of pause and think of the approach and the way you're using the analytics kind of the real-time feedback and this idea of you know on your website you say not more than 12 kids 30 minute chunks a lot of breaks you kind of make it very explicit how you're doing these things. This could potentially, I'm just thinking there's some schools that might might be listening to this is like, wow, we better like go and re, reframe and redesign. Because this is really, I mean, as a parent, if I could know what my kid's doing every half hour, hour, what skills they're improving on. I usually, you know, I'm just thinking most parents get a, paper, a report card yeah. maybe every two, three weeks, and it's about past events, uh, less and less. I mean, there are things like Seesaw and digital portfolios where definitely schools are moving away from that. But I'm wondering, how are schools reacting when you sit with them and, and their approaches? What, what does that conversation look like for them?
1: Well, what's really cool is the schools that we are partnering with um we'll see the the potential of it but see us really as a partnership working with them so that their their structures and timetables can continue but where they are finding it hard to engage certain students and they need to you know historically it would be send them out to The green room, the pink room, there's all sorts of names for these places that, you know, the the naughty kids go when they're fidgeting on the chair and disrupting everybody. Well, now they can go. No, do you know what? Little whatever doesn't do well in that class. Now they can send them to us. (laughs) But it's a great place to be. It's a nice, you know, rewarding experience for that kid and that all of the stakeholders involved in that child's education are all kept in the loop of what's going on when they're in that space with us and so when they go back into the classroom because they want to be with their friends and they want to be normal and they want to you know be part of that that everybody's got oversight of what what's gone on and what what's happened in that space and so there isn't no learning is lost and nobody's Better or worse than anybody else. It's a joined, a truly joined-up approach. Um, and what we're getting increasingly is requests from international schools, and um, as I said, um, maps and multi-academy trusts here in the UK for us to build them their own online school. Which is with, with the um, accelerator program we're on now. That's the next phase in our roadmap. Is so you would
0: actually franchise out?
1: Well, essentially, um, white label the um, Gaialetic software so that um, schools can implement it in their own within their own um, learning ecosystems as well. But what we're finding a lot is that schools are really good at what schools do, and there's a different skill set to be an in-person teacher, and you know facilitating a a in-person classroom so the skill set for the educators that we have online is different so while we've had some conversations with international schools where they they want to eventually hire their own local teams and deliver live classes on their own that's absolutely fine but that's why we also offer um, teacher training and digital um, learning programs to teach teachers how to teach inclusively online using a digital platform, because it is a different, a a different approach. Um, So all of all of those possibilities are all there. And it's just where schools want to spend their, their resources and their energy. And for a lot of the current partners we have, it's more sense for them to go, you just do that online, bit. (laughs) we will just give them the laptop and the space. And we take care of the other bit, but we're hugely transparent on what's being taught there, how it's being taught, what progress those kids are making, um, so that they feel like, yeah, we're working alongside partnering with them, not in competition with anybody.
0: Oh, that's great. The partnership and kind of the shared uh, vision. I think that's really important, especially for schools that they feel they're equal partners in the conversation. I think that's really important. Are you funded only by bums on seats?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the business has been bootstrapped to date uh, by myself and my business partner, Kate Longworth. And um, it's only uh, in the last few months that we have um, had some in, outside investment as i said from baltic ventures and um we are currently in negotiations with um, some investors in our first seed round so that's quite exciting Exciting. for us (laughs) yeah
0: yeah yeah that's that's great and do you have competition is somebody else is there a gaia learning somewhere else but called something else
1: (laughs) um i don't think yet in terms of the the both the direct teaching that we offer, there are obviously um, alternative providers who do support schools um, and, you know, to engage kids online. So, yeah, there are a couple of those in, here in the UK, um, but nobody really doing it in the way that we are, um, especially with the the analytics, the analytics, the data behind it to suit and but then again there are there are competitors in that space doing that as a thing like data and aggregating that for schools Um, I think what's really unique about us and Kate and I is the real lived experience as parents of these kids we know how easy it is for our own kids to shut that laptop if they're not interested in what you're saying or what you're doing it's as much about the pedagogy behind the approach as well as what to meaningfully do with that data and also the looking ahead to what skills we are actually equipping kids with so really highlighting those in a way that make it meaningful for kids going forwards and I think right now our funding yes is is bums on seats of, of working with schools that is our revenue um, our revenue stream but it's the future proofing that and and looking ahead to actually where does this go how, how does this transform yeah. education?
0: absolutely fascinating it's just so interesting and also the, the gaia analytics i mean you know information is power and nice. all of us know that you know the tech companies just love all our behavior as they call it behavior surplus they're making billions so any information that is so helpful and i think also for Parents and educators to have real-time feedback, you can really tweak and, and be quite agile in the way you respond and reshape the type of learning activities and en- engagements that you uh, curate. I think that's just fascinating.
1: And I think even more importantly than the parents and the and you know local authorities and all that understanding it, it's for us. It's empowering kids to understand. Yes, thank you. Thank and you. it's how and this is the neurodivergent angle and the bit that really resonates with me a lot as a mum and also as a neurodivergent person is yeah I don't want to be on medication you know to survive my life I want to know what my strengths are what my you know what what really does make me tick what what is my use in the world and for kids, once you empower them with that, there's nothing they can't do or there's nothing they believe that they can't do. And that's a world that I want my kids to grow up in where they feel like they've got control over their futures and that they can understand what what is beautiful about their busy brains. <laughs> so.
0: Definitely. I, th- I think that's
2: a great note to finish on actually. I think that was a fantastic point to be honest.
0: Yeah, thank you, uh, Kirsten. That's so important. Before we leave, what would you want to tell school leaders and school educators if you have a little something, Mm -hmm. a little message uh, that you want them to walk away with as they reflect on your approach and the sharing and wisdom that you shared and also highlighting the importance of kids being empowered to understand who they are and how they learn? What's kind of your little message to our audience? Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, my message is to not be afraid of technology um, to not be afraid of empowering kids with the knowledge of of their own of how they learn um, to let the reins go a little bit but to yeah to to embrace this to understand it and to work to work with us if they wanted to to partner in that in that way that the future of education is a joined up approach. It's a bigger ecosystem. Place matters. Schools matter. The ethos of schools is hugely important. It is so valuable, coming back to the start of this conversation, that the most powerful thing for me in talking about ADHD is, like, it's being seen. It's being recognized as being part of a community. So we will never not need schools. We Fundamentally, we do. We need them to have that place, that belonging. Um, but we do need to open our minds a little bit more in the tech space and and look to how we can partner with and empower our kids in ways that are going to prepare them for their futures so be really keen to talk with any school leaders who want to find out more about Gaialytics or having their own version of Gaialytics or school online.
0: Fantastic so to our audience it's gaialearning.co.uk and definitely delve into the website and then Kirsten's been very generous. There's show notes and she will also put in the uh, Gaia analytics. So you have some screenshots to see what you are. And so, and she's put all her social media. So reach out to her if you have further questions or you want to learn more. Thank you so much, Kirsten, for the journey that you shared and also reminding us how important it is that kids need to be empowered to understand how they learn. And that's a really a poignant way to finish. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks, Dan.